In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening to help us sort of pin down what Paul is really talking about and to sift through all this verbiage to get to the real heart of the message. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts so that your spirit can speak to us through Holy Scripture and give us the patience and the uh, wherewithal to go forward in studying or completing our study of the book of Romans because it is so important uh, to the early Christians and it is important to us today. So we thank you for this time together and we ask your blessing and our efforts this evening. We praise you and thank you in all things in Jesus' name. I hope you found that uh, chapters 6 through 8 was a little easier to understand than uh, the, some of the previous chapters. And I hope that you found also that uh, Paul's language uh, isn't quite as harsh as it has been in the past. And as you go forward in this uh, particular book, you will find the same uh, attitude now getting softer and softer toward uh, until we get to the end. All right. Tonight, even though it seems that these three chapters have a lot of words and a lot of details into them, in it, uh, you can really boil them down to four main points. These that I put up here. The new spiritual life through baptism. Jesus Christ, a way of life, freedom from the Mosaic law, and freedom, in another sense, through the Holy Spirit. Now, freedom from the Mosaic law is almost all centered around physical freedom, whereas freedom through the Holy Spirit is spiritual freedom. Uh, does that make sense? All right. Uh, when Paul is talking about death, as he does in the first uh, part of chapter 6, he's not talking about physical death, uh, except in one case. All right. But most of the time, he's talking about spiritual death. And that's true throughout the Bible. If you feel that there's a statement that you don't understand because it either is out of context or it sounds uh, strange, try to put it into the spiritual context. Or put the word spirit or spiritual in front or immediately after. And I think you'll get uh, a clearer picture of what is meant. Uh, the writers of this time don't always differentiate between spiritual life and physical life. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and yet it's important for our understanding at this day and age uh, as to which is he talking about. 
Uh, and in most cases, you'll find that it is spiritual life. For example, let's go all the way back to the Adam and Eve story. You recall probably, and I hope you do, uh, that God forbid Adam and Eve to eat the tree, eat the fruit from the tree of of life, or good and evil, whatever knowledge of good and evil, and otherwise they would die. And so the serpent comes along and convinces Eve and, and Adam to that surely you will not die. Well, most people would interpret that as physical death. And obviously, unless the tree is poison fruit, they wouldn't die from just eating that fruit. But that's not what God meant, and that is not what the writer meant. The writer meant spiritual death, not physical death. All right? Obviously, they wouldn't die from just eating uh, forbidden fruit, all right? Uh, but spiritually speaking, they totally ignored or rejected a direct command from God, and that is why the sin that they committed was so great, because it wasn't the idea of the fruit. It was the idea that they rejected a direct command from God. So, we have the same kind of thing now going on in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, when he's talking about uh, the life through baptism that we receive, spiritual life, frees us from our previous sins. Alright, so, let, with that, let us go through and read some of this. I'm not going to read it every bit of this, because like I said, if you keep these four points in mind, you'll see how all of this will dovetail into these four points and be much easier to understand than by just going through uh, the details itself. All right. Chapter 6. Freedom from Sin and life in God. What then shall we say? In other words, this is a continuation. Remember, when Paul wrote this letter, um, there were no divisions of chapters and verses. That didn't come for 1,200 years later. So he's continuing right on with the same thought, but now he's going to turn it... uh, in a different direction. So if we go back slightly to the end of chapter 5, you'll see that he's talking a great deal about sin, how sin entered through the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, And of course, he blames it all on Adam rather than Eve. Even Eve isn't even mentioned here uh, because it was always the male in this culture who dominated and controlled, right, even though she was the instigator. What shall we say then? Shall we persist in sin that grace may abound? Because in the previous uh, statement, he 
says that wherever sin is present or uh, temptation is present, God will always give us grace in order to combat the temptation. And so he's putting up a, a hypothetical, you might say stupid question. Um, Shall we persist in sin just to receive grace, or that grace may abound? Of course not. How can we, how can we who died to sin yet live in it? Alright, now there's one of those cases where you have to put the word spiritually in there. How can we who died spiritually to the idea of sin and the attraction of sin, uh, continue yet to live in it. And that is because the power of evil is far greater than the power of any individual on his own. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. But he doesn't get around to talking about the Holy Spirit until chapter 8. Or are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And that is, of course, when we are baptized, that is the whole idea of baptism. We are making a commitment of ourselves, our entire life, death and whatever, into Jesus Christ. Or let's put it this way. We are making a commitment to God through the life and death of Jesus Christ which should give us enough encouragement and guidance to reject sin. But unfortunately, our human nature will not um, accept that, and therefore we must call on the Holy Spirit to help us. We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in the newness of life, spiritual life again. For we have grown into union with him through a death like his. We shall always be united with him in the resurrection. And so many people do not think about that. Um, I dare say that if you gave a little quiz to um, the whole congregation on a Sunday and they had the time uh, to actually go through and fill out the quiz, which uh, would have been a brief essay on what baptism meant to them, you would find a whole array of misunderstanding from A to Z, I'm sure. Because first of all, uh, even us, even those of us who were taught by the good nuns in Catholic schools, never really were taught about the importance and the basic elements that are present in the sacrament of baptism. And I dare say that most Catholics, most Christians, 
still do not understand the basic elements that are in the sacrament of baptism. And that is that we pledge ourselves against sin of all kind, and we pledge ourselves to Jesus Christ and partake of his death and resurrection. That's the main thing. You know, the forgiveness of sin uh, and the little party that always goes after the baptism is, you know, so incidental. But yet, people do not seem to understand that the sacrament of baptism is a tremendous commitment that we make, or our parents made it on our behalf. So please, that is what I would hope that you would get out of uh, chapter 6 primarily. The importance of the sacrament of baptism. Okay, And then, it leads us into a way of life through Jesus Christ. By observing his teachings, that is the only way we can develop a relationship with him is through prayer and the observance of his teachings. You cannot just say, well, I know who Jesus Christ was and let it go with that. And another thing that I'm really uh, concerned about is how many people separate the church from Jesus Christ. Christ is over here, and the church is over here, and somehow they never connect the two. And unfortunately, it's all one. The church, meaning you and me and everyone else, is the physical presence of God on earth. It is the hands and the voice and the feet and whatever of God on earth. And how many of you, I don't, don't raise hands, but uh, how many of you really never thought of it that way? And yet that is where we come in. We are part. That's when Paul gets to his section on, um, well, it's not in this book in Corinthians, uh, but where he talks about uh, we are all one body. And can the eye do without the ears? And can the hands do without the feet? And so forth. He's saying that each of us is like a part of the body. Not the whole body, but a part of a body. The body of Christ. And therefore, our capabilities, our talents, and the things that we have been given by God, through Christ, and through the church, are for the benefit of all, not just ourselves, not just promote our own life, but we are to use our talents for the good of all. Faith and our way of life through Jesus Christ cannot be just a me and thou thing. Alright? We've shown this kind of diagram in the past. Oh, I'll use a nice bright red here. 
and get it open. Okay? God and you and me. Life through Jesus Christ cannot end there. That would be two-dimensional. No depth. It has to take action through our neighbor. Alright? To complete the relationship. That's what it's all about. Is that understood? Anyone have a problem with that? I know that it is human nature sometimes not to want to bother with other people. Especially as we get more mature. Hate to use that other word. Okay. And that's sort of natural. Unfortunately, our life doesn't end when we're 65 or 68 or 70 or whatever, all right? Our life goes on and our talents are still with us and we have abilities. Uh, it's amazing how many people I see in Sun City uh, who do absolutely nothing towards helping others. And one of the, you know, I've asked a few people, um, what what kind of uh, volunteer work do you do? Well, I did that when I was way back, and I did that when I was uh, living in the Bay Area, and I've had enough of that, and I'm living now for myself. Okay. But actually, you're not living for yourself because you're slowly you're slowly dying spiritually because you're not using the talents that God gave you for the benefit of all. It doesn't take something, you know, a 40-hour-a-week job of volunteering to qualify, but a little each day or a little each week. All right. I don't want to belabor the point. Okay. But I hope you get the whole idea of Chapter 6 is really about these two items right here. The importance of the commitment, our commitment to God through Jesus Christ in the sacrament of baptism. And once we have made that commitment, then our life, or part of the commitment, I should say, is that our way of life should reflect the teachings of Christ. And that's why I, I really cringe when I hear these politicians say, oh, I'm a Catholic, but, uh, you know, i got to vote for uh, abortion rights, and I've got to do this, and so forth, and so on. They're no more Catholic than the man in the moon. Catholic in name only does not qualify. Right. Let us go on. Is there any questions, first of all, in any of that? Let's go on to chapter 7. Freedom from the law. We're talking about the Mosaic law again. 
And the Mosaic Law, as you know, started out with the Ten Commandments given to Moses by God himself. And those still apply. Those still exist and apply very much, not only to the Jewish people, but to all mankind. So we're not talking about that kind of freedom. We're talking about all the details that grew up uh, to uh, comprise the 613 laws that now make up the Mosaic Law in the eyes of the Jewish people. All right. Many of those were never intended to be sacred laws. For example, the dietary laws. Those were intended as hygiene and common sense health laws. Unfortunately, over a period of time, they became sacred in the eyes of the Jewish people. And once they were declared as being sacred by the majority of them, God held people to that. And that's what Paul is talking about now. If you are bound by something that you believe in, strongly believe in, even though it's wrong or it's an incorrect belief, then you are bound by that. And that's what the the Jewish people did. They bound themselves to a law that was, or a set of laws, group of laws, that were never intended to be sacred laws. But once they committed themselves to those laws, then they were held by it and judged by it. And that is what Paul is talking about here. Are you unaware, brothers, for I am speaking people who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over one as long as one lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her living husband. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law in respect to her husband. Consequently, While her husband is alive, she will be called an adulteress if she consorts with another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and she is not an adulteress if she consorts with another man. This is just an example now, all right? And what it's saying is when there is no law, You can't be bound by something or held responsible to something that doesn't exist. In the same way, my brothers, you also were put to death to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to the one who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, you got to distinguish between the laws, and the covenant. The covenant that was made with Moses and Abraham and David and all of the prophets all down through the Old Testament history period was then made void, but after this was written. 
in the year 70 AD, because of the rejection of Christ by the Jewish leaders, the covenant was withdrawn or made null and void. And it was shown by the destruction of Jerusalem and primarily the destruction of the temple. The temple represented far more than just a building where people congregated for uh, their sacrifice. It represented God's presence among the people. And when it was destroyed, that was a sign that the covenant was made null and void. All right. But the laws were not changed by that. And the Mosaic law continues even to today for the Jewish people who are bound by it. And Paul is trying to say for those who have come into Christianity and accepted Jesus Christ, they are no longer bound by that because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ took away the need for the Mosaic law and replaced it with the death of Christ as paying the price of all mankind's sin. And it is only when we participate in that death and resurrection do we participate in that relief of sin. That doesn't mean that we can go out, and of course that's exactly what it's saying here, that doesn't mean that we can go out and uh, do anything and everything and have total freedom. No, because that would not be in accordance with the teachings of Christ. It says, in the same way, my brothers, you also were put to death to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to the one who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, and this again is the opposite of spiritual, when we were in the flesh, our sinful passions awakened by the law worked in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, dead or spiritually dead, to what held us captive, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not under the obsolete letter, letter of the law. Let us go over a little bit here to verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13 on page 66. Did the good then become death for me? Of course not. Sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, worked death in me through the good so that sin might become sin. Sinful beyond measure through the commandment. Well, that's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? All right. But I think I've already clarified that here. Is that when you are bound by something that you feel is sacred, 
even though you may be wrong, you are then judged by what you are bound by. And if, even though you are wrong, if you go against what you believe in, and your carnal nature, you know, takes over and causes you to do something against that, even though you know that it's, or you feel that it's wrong, uh, you have committed sin. And that is true even for us today. If we do something that we believe is wrong, and we go ahead and do it anyways, or even if we do something that we know is definitely wrong, or let's put it this way, supposing through rage or through uh, passion or through some uh, feelings within us that we cannot overcome. We do something or want to do something that is a serious sin, a true serious sin. Alright? But at the last minute, we are stopped by some external force that make a difference. We have already committed the sin even though we didn't go through it because we were stopped. Had we not been stopped, we would have gone through and committed the sin, because that's what we wanted to do. It's the same way back there with the Jewish people. But I think that what we can do today is not so much worry about the conditions and so forth that Paul is really talking about. What we should really be concerned about is how does this affect us today? And the whole idea that we're trying to present affecting us today is that without the Holy Spirit, our human nature is not strong enough to totally reject all sin. And therefore, we must rely on the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. And that really kind of puts it, I think, in a capsule form. The Jews who come over to Christianity, (coughs) then or now, excuse me, The Jews who came over to Christianity then, at the time of Paul, or any time later, and even now, converts are freed of all past sin through their commitment in baptism. They are no longer bound by the Mosaic Law. But one of the things that we have to step back and sort of sympathize, you might say, with the people in the first century, is that the Mosaic Law is not only a belief system, but it was a way of life. It was a way of their culture. It affected virtually everything that they did. In fact, it was so 
uh, control them that they really could hardly move uh, without bumping into one of the laws. All right. I think I've told you before that my wife used to tell stories about the Jewish family that lived across the street who would call them, um, my wife and her sisters, over to uh, light the fire uh, in the stove, you know, the wood stove, uh, on the Sabbath because they were not allowed to do that. That was against the law. But of course, what they did was against the law too. They circumvented the law by asking my wife or one of her sisters to come over and do it for them. That is, you know, that is getting around the purpose. They're observing the letter, but not the spirit of the law. So they're committing a sin against what they truly believed at the time. All right. Um, the other thing is uh, when electricity became more common in households, uh, many of the Jewish people, instead of uh, getting gas stoves, went out and got electric stoves because they didn't have to light a fire. And, you know, well, that's also circumventing the law. So that's one of the problems. But for those who came over to Christianity, they could forget all about that. All right? Because they accepted the new covenant and they made a new commitment through baptism. And then that's what this idea of freedom from the Mosaic law is all about. They did not have to observe all the 613 uh, laws that are that make up the Mosaic law. Now, the Ten Commandments are still in existence for them, for us, for everyone. All right, because those are laws of God. They existed before the Mosaic law. Any questions so far? Yes, Dick. Wasn't it the same thing in marriage woman because of man? A married woman. Yes. But before marriage, she could go out and roll in the hay with the boy next door? Far be it from me to bless you, my son, <laughs> with any answer. <laughs> I think the choice of words of consorting was perhaps not the best choice of words, okay? Um, flirting, uh, you know, being seen with um, whatever uh, might have been more acceptable. But the word consorting conjures up in our minds all kinds of things. Yeah. Well, yes. There are many words uh, throughout the Bible that could have been sort of eased or, or made clear. But then again, as words change their meaning over a period of time, there would have been constantly changes anyways, which there are. And, of course, people do object to any change because once they get used to something, they don't like it. All right? Just take, for example... Uh, the Our Father. 
lead us into temptation. That's not what it says, but that's the way many people uh, look at it. Say, The whole idea is God would never directly lead you into temptation. Uh, so, what it really means is do not put us into a situation that is beyond our control. But unfortunately, you have Elizabethan English in there, and nobody's going to dare change that. Subject us not to the trial. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's in, in Luke's, Luke's gospel. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, yes, the Our Father, as we know it, comes from Matthew's gospel. No. Right. Right. Well, that's true. And what we do is we just leave that up to God and God will be the judge. We're not going to worry about it. Uh, but you're right. It's, it's sort of on a, an uneven type of thing. Excuse me. You had a question? I'm starting I teach Dixon in second grade catechism. And we have some leftover cookies. And we're wondering if you guys want to eat them. Oh. Yeah, why don't you? We'll send them to this. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we could have brought some coffee too. You know. <laughs> See, cookies without coffee. Ah. Of course, these are young people. Maybe they don't drink coffee. Anyways. All right. Let's go on to chapter 8, because it's really, I think, far more important. <clears throat> Hence now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. In other words, those who are living by the teachings of Christ. Not just, you know, accepting Christ for who he is. It is living according to his teachings that this is meant. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has freed you from the law of sin and death. And of course, if you live by a, a legal code such as the Mosaic law, uh, any infraction of that would be a cause for sin and spiritual death. For what the law weakened by the flesh was powerless to do, this God has done by sending his own son. What it means there is that laws cannot do anything good for you. All they can tell you is what you should do, and if you don't, what you've done wrong. But the life of Jesus Christ and living by it 
can give you and bring you into eternal life. Okay. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, sinful mankind, that is, and for the sake of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the righteous decree of the law might be fulfilled in us, who live not by according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Important. We are living according to the spirit. For those who live according to this to the flesh are concerned with the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit with the things of the spirit. The concern of the flesh is dead death, but the concern of the spirit is life and peace. <clears throat> For the concern of the flesh is hostility towards God. It does not submit to the law of God, nor can it. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. On the contrary, you are in the spirit. If only the spirit of God dwells in you. Whoever does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, again, spiritually dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness or holiness. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then the one who raised Jesus uh, Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Consequently, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. Children through adoption. Well, we went through this back in the letter to the Galatians. Uh, and this is where the, the whole idea of we are the children of God. We are all God's children. Therefore, we are by adoption. Well, I'm going to read because we have a little time here. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you... <coughs> For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption through which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If only we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And that's part of the whole purpose of suffering. Quite often people will say, well, if God really loved us, then why do we suffer? Well, suffer is suffering, I should say, is part of our human nature 
And I don't know of anyone who has given a satisfactory answer as to why good people suffer. Except that, as it says right here, we unite our suffering with the suffering of Christ for the salvation that we have earned through his life, death, and resurrection. I consider the sufferings of this present time as nothing compared to the glory to be revealed for us. For a creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. For creation was made subject to futility, meaning that creation uh, has a mortal ending at some point in time. Not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. Meaning that if our bodies are going to be raised from the dead at some point in time and and we are returned to our bodies, then there has to be a place for those bodies to be. And all other creation will probably be restored in some way as well to support the body. We know that all creation is groaning in labor pains even until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, We also groan within ourselves as we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope, we were saved. And now hope that sees for itself is not hope. For hope is what one sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with endurance. In the same way, the Spirit also comes to the aid of our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible groanings, and the one who searches hearts knows what is the intention of the Spirit, because it intercedes for the holy ones according to God's will. And that is the whole point of why we should ask the Holy Spirit to help us through our daily life, particularly when we are tempted to do things that we know we shouldn't be doing. The Holy Spirit's job, really, is to help us eventually achieve sanctification. Not just justification, not just righteousness, but eventually sanctification. God's indomitable love in Christ. We know that all things work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, that does not mean predestination. Okay? And yet, in some ways, it does. But it is, it's like saying, Uh, I'm going to have Thanksgiving dinner at my house 
and I want you all to come. Well, that doesn't mean that you're going to be forced to come. That doesn't mean that if you don't come, you're going to be, you know, condemned to hell or anything. No. It is, this is something that I would like. And that is exactly what this means here. God has set up his plan of salvation and he would like everybody to follow it so that in the end everybody would be returned to him in heaven to enjoy, enjoy eternal life. But we have free will and we make choices. And if those choices are in conformity with God, then we will enjoy eternal life. But if our choices are opposed or reject the will of God and go the other way, then our free will allows us to do that, but the consequences are there also. For what what then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all, how will he how will he not also give us everything else along with him? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who acquits us. Who will condemn it? It is Jesus Christ who died, rather was raised, and who also is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. So what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will anguish or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? No. As it is written, for your sake, we are being slain all the day. We are looked upon as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we conquer overwhelmingly through him who loved us. For I am certain that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present things, nor future things, nor powers, or height, or depth, or any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I recommend that chapter chapter 8 verse 34 I believe it is 30, well 31 or 34 I always say 34 uh, that's where it begins to the end of that chapter everybody who is uh, caught in depression should read that and sort of have it as a, a little memento tacked up somewhere uh, where they can conveniently read it on a daily basis. Because it is something that is so true, and yet so few people take advantage of it. Uh, but it is a very beautiful statement that is true in all respects. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, 
angels, principalities, powers, and so forth are the various levels of angels. You know, there's seven levels of angels. We had talked about angels, I think, in uh, one of the other classes. Um, and what he's talking about, all levels of angels, uh, even though they are greater than mankind, even if they came against us, they could not separate us from the love that we have uh, in God through Jesus Christ. Any questions? Yes. Going back to um, 814, 814, that first section, when I read that, it almost seemed to me that Paul was saying, that without Jesus you can't get to heaven. To some degree that's right. But that applies to people who know Jesus and have had an opportunity to partake uh, of his teachings and his way of life. For those people who never had that opportunity, we can't say that they are cut off. That would not be fair. As I've said many times, uh, in John's first letter, first letter of John the Evangelist, it talks about if a person lives in the spirit of love within his or her culture, whatever that might be, but it is in the spirit of love of a higher power and neighbor, then God lives in that person whether he or she knows Jesus or not. And you can't say that that person is going to be condemned uh, because they don't know Jesus Christ and were not a Christian. So the proper interpretation is for those who know Jesus, you can't get to heaven without it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And it is a sad thing, but People who leave, particularly the Catholic Church, but other Catholic, I mean, other Christian denominations, and go to some other faith, such as Judaism or Buddhism or something of that kind, really commit a very serious thing, sin, and give up salvation voluntarily. Unfortunately. Yes, that never changes. Yes, conversion, though, what do you mean by that? Well, we can't say that for sure, all right? But it would assume, we would assume that, yes. Um, but it is not up to us to say that anyone is condemned. But the obvious is right there. They are giving up 
God's key to salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. <coughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. But he has seen a higher light, and now he now is accepting something that is new and has a higher power. And that is Christianity and the life, death, and salvation of Christ. That's exactly uh, the point that Paul was making to those Jews who came over to Christianity. They no longer, see, they were under the Mosaic law, which is the law of the flesh. But now they are accepting the law of the spirit through Christ. And they have given up because they have seen the light. To a point, yes. To a point. And so did all of the apostles for the years after Christ's death and resurrection. They continued to live as good Jews until they saw, particularly the writings of Paul, how the exclusivism of Judaism did only clash with the inclusivism of Christianity. And the fact that the Mosaic law was then discovered in their minds and hearts to be a law of the flesh and not a law of the spirit. And so they accepted the higher power and the teachings of Christ. Does that make sense? That's right. And that... That's why we cannot actually judge anybody because there is always that possibility that with something within their makeup of their entire life will override any negative that they may have done. And so we have to leave it in the hands of God. Uh, because it is not up to us to make those decisions. Yeah. Has historically 
Uh, I suppose uh, there could be, and that is why we have these ecumenical councils, such as Vatican II, every so often, to make those corrections, so that what we are living by today is accepted by God, because he says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. In other words, agreed to. So, but yes, I suppose from time to time uh, there were changes because they saw that it was either not correct or did not fit the time. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're right. You're right, yeah. But you see, God put the church in the hands of human beings, and it's kind of, uh, like all, like all human beings, we are subject to our own biases and prejudice and so forth and so on. Yeah. Uh, he only can do that in matters of faith and morals. I mean, he's only infallible in certain things, not everything. Okay. Alright. Any other questions? Goodness sakes, we've got uh, 25 minutes here, but I can't let you go free with without... Well, remember, they were spirits. But they were also people. Yes, but they were in spirit form. So, but uh, my question is, is that if heaven wasn't open to anybody until Jesus opened the gates of heaven, where were they? Well, please don't bring that word up. <laughs> Limbo. Limbo. Yeah. 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 Yes. Oh, I know. Yeah. Well, the theory is, and this is just theory, all right, not something that you are bound to believe in. But when Christ was in, let's say, the tomb for three days, what he was doing was bringing all of those people into heaven. Well, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, there's no point in my saying, you know, they were on cloud nine or or whatever. Oh yes, yes, I get I get that question quite often. Uh, in fact, just recently, and this is more to the 
more to the point. Just recently, I had somebody call me and ask me if Mary was assumed into heaven, body and soul, where is your body? There's no Mary's tomb. No, there is not a tomb recognized by the church. Not any more than I have to. Yes. Um, that's, that's a whole other subject. <laughs> Well, uh, yes, and I I should apologize. EWTN is very shallow. Shallow. It does not get into any depth. And it's all right, I suppose, for some people. But for people. There is no recognized tomb of Mary recognized by the church. No. And it's probably something in the in Ephesus uh, often considered to be the last place that Mary lived. All right? Yes. And that is understandable. But there is no recognized place recognized by the church as the tomb of Mary. We don't know. Yeah. And there's no point in conjuring up a, you know, a theory or a guess. That's right. Uh, 1950. Yeah. That's right. That's right. But Mary, being a human being, had to die. But because she was kept from any sin in her entire life, from the moment of conception, then she did not suffer the consequences of corruption of the body. And on that basis, she was taken into heaven. It was developed over a long period of time and a great deal of prayer. But it has been part of the tradition of the church for many, many centuries. And only became a dogma of the church in 1950 when it was being questioned by a number of theologians. That's right. Yes. Prayer again to the Holy Spirit. That's where the Holy Spirit really comes into play. Yes. 
chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. What law was, do you think Paul was talking about? I mean, it's not just, is he just using parallelism to the Jewish law, or did he have a, a law of Christ in mind? No, 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 it was. How do I say this? It was not something written down as a law. Um, trying to give you an analogy of what it's saying. The, the whole theory, the whole concept of um, those who are in Christ. Okay. Not a law as we think of law. I can't give you a better answer than that. Because yeah. there is no such law. I'll take it as literally. In a way. In a way, yes. What he's doing is you know, uh, sort of cramming the whole concept and meaning of the death of Christ into one word. And it's somewhat of a ill fit. Any other questions? I think we've kind of exhausted our uh, efforts tonight. But have you seen how the wording is a lot easier to understand in these chapters than they were in the previous chapters. And I think you'll find that will even get easier uh, from here towards until the end. Okay. Let us end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the Ability to discuss our feelings as well as our thoughts and our emotions. It's important that we get all of those out and then through the spirit form a new concept. So give us the strength, the courage, the guidance to form that concept of what it means to put on the whole idea that life of Jesus Christ. We ask this in your name and we ask your blessing and our efforts as we continue our study of St. Paul, his life, and his letters. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.